Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. So the funny thing uh, about how I got to Pride is I first heard about Pride uh, when I was using. Um, and I was using with somebody who uh, had said that they were at Pride. Um, and they made it sound like amazing and luxurious, like it was a vacation. And um, I kind of find think of that as like a higher power moment for me, because as I was in like the grips of active addiction, like it was actually like the worst part uh, of my using uh, that there was like this little glimmer that that this person um, had mentioned pride so that when I um, when I had come home, my, my last run uh, was an entire month. I, I had run away. Uh, my using had become very obvious uh, to my family uh, and to my husband. Um, and they were actively trying to get me to get more serious help, which I, which I was resisting. Um, and the last big blow up was a huge fight that I had with my husband that had turned physical. Um, I hadn't used in a few days. We had just come back from a trip. So I, I sort of felt like I couldn't use and I was really jonesing too. Uh, so I created this massive fight uh, that turned physical and I grabbed my stuff and I left for 30 days. Um, and so when I had come back from that, uh, I wasn't given an option. Um, I'm very hazy about what that what that first week looked like, uh, but it ended with the police being called uh, and an ambulance being called and being taken out of my apartment. I was a, I was a crazy animal within that time. Um, I was physically abusive uh, to my family who was there just trying to get me to get help. Um, and uh, I had broken my husband's ribs at that point when they were like, just trying to like get me to get help. Um, and when they talked about me going to treatment, I, I said, I wanted to go to pride um, because that was like, the, that was actually the only sort of treatment center I was aware of uh, was because of this person. So I said, I wanted to go there. Um, and they were like, that's not happening. We're not sending you to a different state. I'm in New Jersey. I'm like, we're not sending you to a different state. I had disappeared for a month. So they were like, there's absolutely not. Like you're, you, are, you are staying where we can like get you. Um, and so I ended up after, after being in a psych hold um, for 24 hours at the hospital when I, when I finally got there, um, I got sent to a treatment center in South Jersey that was really terrible. Um, uh, but I'm sort of grateful for it. They, they were abusive, uh, mentally, slightly physically. Um, and I had this moment, uh, I was there for three days and I realized that no one was coming to save me. Um, and I had this moment where I went out to a gazebo and I cried and I cried till there was nothing left. I, I don't even think I was a week sober at that point, maybe just like seven days. Um, and I said that I would do whatever it takes to never be back at that spot. Because in my using, as crazy as it was, I did not think that I, I had a problem yet. I didn't think of it as a problem. Um, I thought I was fine. Um, but when I was there and I was in this place, that was a problem. 
And my family wasn't coming to save me. No one was coming to get me. And I had this moment and I feel like it's the first time that I really like talked to my higher power, whatever that was. I didn't even think of it. That's what I was doing. But I was outside and I said, I will do whatever it takes to never be in this spot ever again. Um, And the next morning uh, I was told to come to the office and my mom was on the phone and she had said that they'd been working with pride for a couple of days and that I had an intake phone call the next day. And within that very quickly after that moment. um, So when I got to pride, uh, I was just so grateful to not be where I was and, and, and open to what pride was going to offer me. Yeah. Thank, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, one thing I think that I'm interested in and uh, hope, wondering if you could expand on maybe is you had talked about being physical with like your family members and kind of just being in this like belligerent state, if you will. Um, I'm assuming that you're not a violent person by nature. Um, and I do really think a lot of times it is really as simple as like Jekyll and Hyde of just like who you are sober is just not at all who you are drunk. And a lot of times people say like, oh, well, like the drunken mind reveals the sober heart. But like my experience of like working in treatment and listening to people's story is like that may be the case for some people, but mostly it is like literally polar opposite. Um, can you speak to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so my drug of choice was crystal meth. Um, I did not go under psychosis uh, with meth yet. Uh, that was not part of my story uh, when I got sober. But the violent tendencies of meth had definitely become a thing. Um, I had moments. Um, and it's interesting in my, in my using, uh, uh, when you say that, because I had these like outer body experiences when I was using, um, where I was in situations, the way that I had, uh, gotten physical, physically abusive to some of the people I was using with, uh, and definitely towards my family, um, that I, there was this me, not like the pre-sobriety not using me, um, not the using me, but this sober man, me now, would sit there and, and I would have these outer body experiences when I was acting out. And and I remember them and being like, dude, what are you doing? Like I like, like I could see like this sober, like the clarity that I have in my sobriety of looking at that and being, what the hell are you doing? Um, and having some sort of like remorse for that um but having absolutely no control over that um and i think it's very interesting uh now when i tell people about that part of my use um and and how i was physically abusive to the people like uh i and i can go into a lot of detail of some of the things that i did that that i still sort of have to live with um that I, i did those things that was not who I am. That uh, that doesn't represent who I am. Um, and it was a lot of amends to make up. But it's funny to me when I tell people about that and they look at me like, you did what? Um, so, uh, I mean, that's hard, but it's literally the lack of control um, on the substance. And when I was on the substance, when I was jo- jonesing for the substance, um, 
uh, of just this this rage uh, that would come over me. Um, you know, not like I, I don't like to get into a lot of detail uh, of my using, um, but I feel like there was one or two times where I I I, I could have killed somebody. Um, like I I was I was I would I would explode in that way and that is no way who i am um and that's actually um you know it's interesting there there was a lot of i never used because of the fun um it was never uh well it was i thought of it as a fun experience um but you know i i i worked in theater um in new york city um, and I was offered meth a lot of times, you know what I mean? Like the, it's just, I was offered a lot of drugs, a lot of times at, at parties. And I always said no, uh, until I said yes. And I was, I was 38 years old when I finally said yes. Like that's when my using started is I was 38. Um, and it, and I had to, when I first got deprived, there was a lot of like, well, why did I say yes? I went so long with always saying no. Why did I say yes? And um, and I realized because it was how broken I was. Uh, and one of the things that I when I when I think about pride a lot is I think is when I got there and I was in my room in that first night and the noise had stopped. Like I could sleep and just sleep because uh, all the noise had stopped. So um, there was just so much of my using that's just not who I am. Uh, wasn't who I was, but was a result of what a broken person I was. And I think that was also part of my acting out physically was this trying to like break the things that were hurting me um, as part of it. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Can you, I, I'm really interested to hear about your experience um, in New York and specifically in the theater community, because we do see a lot of people um, from all over the country, but specifically when we get people from New York, we do see a decent amount of actors what what is that life like and um because i know like you know on broadway they always say like eight shows a week and of course that's the way it is for just theater across the board so um can you talk about that at all yeah so you know we see a lot of using in the entertainment industry a lot um and i think part of it well i'll speak for me I had gotten involved in theater as an actor uh, and I was super young. Like I was one of those um, kids who at like four or five years old knew exactly what I wanted to do and actively um, explored that career path. So I, there was times when I was in high school, I was doing four shows at the same time. In fact, uh, there was one weekend where I was in two shows that weekend and my father would pick me up from one show it was Godspell at my high school and drive me across town to the little community theater in town that, so I could make my entrance as a winky in the wizard of Oz. Like that was like a weekend, my sophomore year of high school. Um, but with that comes a tremendous amount of rejection and um, you know, things that I don't talk about often is um, I was, I was cut from two college musical theater programs um, I realize now that the reason why those things were happening was because I was so wrapped up in my own lack of self-confidence 
uh, as to where my abilities were, like I, I completely self-sabotaged myself. Um, I would self-sabotage myself at auditions. I just, I was just this like ball of, of nerves and, and doubt. And, um, so as that rejection kept coming and coming and coming, I had moved into directing, uh, directing professionally. And, and I had just put my, I, I was working in a lot of toxic places as I think, you know, I mean, that's everywhere, but I found myself in a, having a lot of toxic relationships uh, professionally. I was never making a lot of money, um, like at all, or sometimes making absolutely nothing and, and doing it, hoping for something else to come, um, throwing a lot of my own money into things to try to make it better because I felt like if I could just do this show and that show was going to be super amazing, everybody would finally see how great I was when in reality, um, you know, it was just, I, I couldn't see it. It was just me trying to like self-validate myself and the work that I was doing. And that was, that was just never going to work for me. Um, so I had become this, um, this really burning building uh, uh, of despair and sadness and self-loathing. Um, and, and I felt like a failure and I felt worthless so that when I was offered crystal meth that time, I had become so disgusted with myself and knowing what meth did. Like, you know, I don't think you get to be a 38-year-old gay man uh, in living in a major city and not see the results of what crystal meth does. You know, like we see those images, we see what it does. Um, and I accepted it, knowing full well what it did. Uh, and I think I did that. I know I did that because of how terrible I felt um, about myself uh, and that it just didn't matter. And of course, you know, when I, when uh, on, on the first hit, um, it was, it was a eye-opening experience. The noise finally stopped. Uh, the confidence that I thought that I had uh, that I had lacked for so long uh, magically appeared. The connection that I thought that I was looking for and everywhere and was lacking, I thought uh, because of the substance that it was there. And I knew it was a problem. That very first time I knew it was a problem. And uh, people in New York laugh at me about this. And some of them remember, but seven days after I used for the first time, I showed up at a meeting of Crystal Meth Anonymous. Because when I came down from that first high, I cried for 24 hours. Um, and then after 24 hours, I started thinking about like, well, maybe I want to find like videos of people doing it, like watch videos of people doing Crystal Meth. And then two days after that, um, it was, well, where can I find it again? And I realized that that was a problem. And I showed up, uh, I, my first time using was on a Saturday night and the next Saturday morning at 1130, I was in my first CMA meeting. Um, and I visited the rooms. I say visited because I went to meetings. I didn't do any work. I didn't do step work. I didn't really have a sponsor. I just sort of showed up and cried at meetings. Um, and I did that for three months while using sporadically until I decided that the rooms were my problem. 
And if I didn't put any limitations on my using, then I wouldn't want to use as much. And I could just do it, quote, recreationally. Um, so it was around October of that time that I was like, I'm done. I'm just, I'm not done with the rooms and I'll just use when I feel like it. And a week later, I was a daily user. So didn't work out, but I think that that's what it was. I um, One of the things I did uh, in sobriety was to go back and watch DVDs of my past shows. And that was a really emotional experience for me. Like I cried a lot because I was watching this work that I did that I did not have any pride or joy in when they were actually happening in front of me. But I went back and I would watch these videos and cry because I was so proud of the work that I had done, but I just, I couldn't see it at that time. Like it was just my thinking pre-drug use had just clouded all of that over for me. So um, I think that's a lot of it, the rejection and the, and the self-loathing that comes from, from, from trying to work in the entertainment industry. Just, I, I couldn't handle it. Yeah, I think that's so common, just that spiral down, you know, you don't even realize what's happening until you're like, so far gone that you uh, you can't pull yourself out of it. Jay, kind of a theme I'm feeling throughout your story here is really pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and finding the will within yourself to keep moving uh, forward. I, you know, when you went to the treatment center in New Jersey and had a ne negative experience, uh, continuing to try another treatment center, I think a lot of people give up on that, uh, all the rejection you faced in your uh, professional career. Can you kind of speak to how you keep uh, moving forward within your recovery, within your daily life, experiencing uh, the things that you have? So um, to be clear, I had no choice uh, in going to another treatment center uh, when I left that one. Um, like that's something that like I'm going to be very clear about. When um, I went to Pride, uh, my uncle who lives in San Francisco uh, and my dad, my, my uncle flew out to New Jersey and they drove down. This treatment center was outside of Atlantic City. And we flew to Pride, we flew to Minneapolis from Philly. And I would, and there was a layover in Chicago. And I had my father and my uncle on either side of me, making sure that I would not run at any point. Um, at any point, because they had no idea what, what I was going to do. Uh, and I look back on it and I was like, I don't know what I would have done at that point. Like, uh, but it was literally, I had two guards. Um, that and they we flew into minneapolis we got an uber and we went to pride and they had the uber wait outside to take them back to the airport because they had flights in two hours like for my uncle to go back to san francisco and my dad to go back to jersey um so i had no choice um but what i do remember is uh there was something that happened when i got to pride um and when i got to pride I knew that based off of where I was, um, that I had a choice and I was going to be there for 28 days, definitely 28 days. Like I knew that was sort of like a non-negotiable thing that was happening. Um, and I could be my usual combative self and be the smart guy that I was who knew better um, and try to manipulate the situation and do how, try to make those 28 days go the way that I wanted them to go. Or I could just shut the hell up and just write out the 28 days and just say yes and do what they say. And when I get out, I will just keep 
using the way that I was using. Um, even after that whole moment I had before, it just, it wasn't, it didn't seem like the using at that, like that, that was the problem is that I let everybody like get involved in it. Um, but so when I got to pride, uh, the noise stopped. Um, and I actually felt from the moment I got there, I felt the connection that I feel like I had been looking for my whole life. Like I just felt it instantly from the second I walked, they took me down those stairs. Um, before I went, um, I think, I forget that I, I'm pretty sure I think, uh, I know him. He, um, the, the guy who did my intake and before he took me down, my dad asked to speak to him alone for a second. And, uh, when we went into the library to do my intake and I got like my mug and, and all of that stuff, um, I asked him what my dad said to him. And he said that my dad pinned him up against the wall and said, take care of my son. Um, and that stuck with me. Um, so I remember when I was going to sleep that night that there was, it was different. It was very different. Um, and so I, um, I woke up the next morning and as I went through the day and I was just doing what everybody told me, I was just listening. I was going to be part of this no matter what. Um, I, I realized at the end of that day that maybe I shouldn't use for my family. Like maybe I had screwed up enough that maybe I won't use for them anymore. And then after I finished the second day, I realized that I wasn't going to use for myself anymore because I just listened to what they, what I was told at pride. Um, and because of my experience at pride, uh, it built up this confidence in myself a natural confidence in myself. So that, um, when I went to LA, I think, you know, when you talk about like staying sober and what keeps me sober is that everything got right-sized for me. Um, pride and the experience I had there with, with my counselor that um, I don't think I would be sober today. I don't think I would have stayed sober if it wasn't for the experience I had at Pride because of the, of the work that I did with my counselor who worked on trauma um, that I didn't even know that I had and that I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of the fact of how that one trauma, like, so, so my, my trauma, just like to not vague book it, um, I was uh, abused by my fourth grade teacher, uh, emotionally, physically. Um, uh, she would make fun of me in front of the class. Uh, she would like tell the class how stupid I was. She would hit me with books in the back of the head. Like it was a miserable experience. Uh, and I would go home and I would tell my mom and it just like my mom, who was also a teacher, like none of it jived. And it wasn't until like the big experience. It was the day after Halloween. And there was a whole thing leading up to it. But the end of the story was that she picked me up out of my desk and she threw me against a wall and she picked up my desk and she threw the desk at me up against the wall. Um, and when I went home for lunch and I told my mom, she's like, what are you saying? And she took me right back until she saw that my desk was still there. And the end result uh, of what had happened in that, I don't know what actually happened to her, but she continued to teach and I got moved to a different school. And that set in my mind that I was the problem and that when people had issues with me, 
no matter how they treated me, I got punished. And that created the snowball effect for me that just kept going and going and going and going for, for decades at that point. Um, and it was because of my therapist at Pride that we were able to discuss that trauma. And I didn't even think of that as being a thing. Like my mind had just like shut that off and she was persistent and she got that out of me. And as soon as we talked about it, it was like a mobile of like, like the mobiles that hang over a baby's crib. I could literally feel the anchor of that mobile falling and all of the resentment and fear and shame and all of those things just came crumbling. Um, and, uh, and things that I had with my mom, like she said to me, um, Ask, ask your mom when she thinks of, uh, of a picture of you that she took of you, what picture does she think of? Um, and so I asked my mom and my mom came back to me. She goes, the picture, I was Tom Sawyer for Halloween that year. And she thinks of that picture of me as Tom Sawyer. And I said, really, why that picture? And she goes, because I think of how could that woman have done that to you, which was the next day and realizing how much my whole family was holding on to that. And that we were able to process that. So I think, in staying sober today, uh, and what I have today is is the release of that baggage, um, and that uh, having done the steps and learning what my character defects are, and learning how I make things difficult for myself, which is still sort of like my mo of what I want to do. I want to make things difficult, um, and just working in the solution every day. And the solution isn't just like the program. Right. Like they always say, like, oh, there's a solution in the program. Right. Yes, there is. But there's a solution in every problem that I am faced with. And I can either focus on what that solution is. Like, this is what I have to do. Or I can focus on the problem. Right. Like the, the road, there's traffic on my way to work. So I can focus on how awful it is, like the traffic is on my way to work. Or I can find the solution into ways that I can spend that time that's productive to me, whether it's like listening to the radio, listening to my favorite songs calling a sponsee and checking in with them on the way, right? Like I have a choice in every single thing that I do. And it can either like, I can focus on the problem of the thing, or I can focus on the solution of the thing. And that's what keeps me going every day is, is just knowing that like, I can be in the negative or I can be in the positive and that, and that, and that's my choice. And I choose that every day. Jay, I think you shared some great tidbits and thank you for opening up with us. Uh, your bravery is so admirable. I appreciate you taking the time to hang out, share your story today. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys. Really happy to do it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.